Hi, my name is Ali Reza Mojibian, and welcome to Noteworthy. I am very excited and honored to be able to speak to Jim Ross this week. Jim is a member of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra and holds the position of second trumpet in the ensemble. He has had an illustrious career performing and teaching all over the world in some of its most storied stages and halls. He was the principal trumpet uh, for Vancouver Opera, for the Royal Winnipeg Ballet. He has guested as principal trumpet for the Chicago Symphony, New York Philharmonic, Montreal Symphony, American Symphony Orchestra, and the Mido Chamber Orchestra under the direction of Maestro Seiji Ozawa. Jim is a Vancouver native who made his way to the United States early in his career and most recently moved back to Vancouver with his family. Welcome, Jim. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. So, Jim, you, as I mentioned, you are from Vancouver. Where in Vancouver, in the Lower Mainland, were you born and raised? I grew up uh, in the East End, as we used to call it, which is now East Van slash the drive, so commercial drive area. I went to uh, high school at Britannia High School and uh, a couple of elementary schools, um, Grandview and, and Lord Nelson. There's not a single home that I lived in in the East End that actually is still standing. Uh, they're all replaced by you know, multifamily units. And certainly the pricing is different. You know, many of us live there because it's what our working class parents could afford or, or many times, uh, you know, new Canadians who came over was the first end of town they settled in. And there's been many, many changes for the better too. It's, it's a thriving, bustling neighborhood. And, and that's great to see. What did you want to be when you were growing up? Well, <laughs> I, I didn't take the typical school slash career path. Um, I was inspired by my brother-in-law, who was a deckhand on a tugboat. And I loved the water and I loved being outdoors. And later on, when I was a teen, I loved discovered I loved cooking as well. And I thought, well, that would be a job because the, that would combine both interests because the, the deckhands have to cook too. When people ask me how I got into the music business, I, I tell them I was, I was all out of options. So <laughs> that's how I ended up where I'm at. You know, uh, most of the musicians um, that I've spoken to so far, uh, they all um, express a similar timeline of being exposed to different kinds of music. And then one thing leading to another, they either pick up the piano or the guitar. And then, then that differentiates into a genre or two, and they either move forward with a career path or, or a studying path in music, or they don't. What kind of music did you have playing in the Ross uh, household? Well, I, I like to say we had both kinds, country and Western. You know. Nice. <laughs> there was not live music played or the radio even played too much in the house, although my mom did have a beautiful singing voice. We often just listened to the radio in the car, and I was always tuned to CKWX country music. And, uh, of course, that along with the viewing habits that you're exposed to when you're a child and it's not your TV, you used to watch Hee Haw. So I actually very much wanted to play the banjo. Um, that was the first instrument I really, really wanted to play. But I was a shy kid, and I was too shy to take lessons. One day outside of the school, the elementary school, Grandview School, there was someone handing out flyers, take music lessons. And some of my friends ended up taking lessons from an Italian man who was a barber out of the back of his barber shop on Commercial Drive. <laughs> uh, I swear to God, <laughs> this is the God's honest truth. 
you know so what was he teaching he was mainly accordion but guitar and accordion and he taught banjo and and uh you know it was old school man it was uh you know you didn't do your lesson my friend walked out of there with you know bruises on his knuckles from getting whacked with a stick i mean it was Oof. we're talking 1970 you know in late 60s so uh fits the bill world. fits the bill um did you end up taking uh lessons or did you did you not no, in fact, I, I I first picked up the trumpet and the guitar in grade six at Lord Nelson School, um, but I actually did not take a trumpet lesson until I was out of high school. Oh, interesting. So the okay, so you were you were literally exposed in the school environment, uh, not anywhere near home. Yes, yes, and uh, you know I know many programs now, including the ones my kids took part in in high school and elementary school, were extracurricular. These these were actually part of the curriculum back then. See, this opens up a really interesting conversation because uh, you are the first person who I've spoken to who was exposed to a musical instrument outside of the home. And I think it it kind of speaks to um, the benefit of having um, music and music education really being taught in schools, because then you would potentially get more students to be exposed to different instruments and and maybe pick up something they never would have would have at home. Oh, ab- absolutely! And there also used to be a very robust uh, music in the schools program where you'd go to an assembly and listen to different groups. My first hearing the trumpet live was in a grade four or five. And it was at Grandview School, and it was a group with the great Canadian Vancouver trumpet player, Donnie Clark. And it was a group called Pacific Salt. And, uh, you know, this was like a, the full jazz band, and we, we, are, we got exposed to all sorts of stuff in, in the schools. And when you consider what the East End was like at the time, not too many people would have a musical instrument in their home. It was a very, very rare thing. Uh, you're often you know, first-generation Canadian or newly immigrated to Canada, multiple generations of the family working alongside one another and living in the house. It's a typical immigrant story. So when you first heard it in grade four or five, and then you picked up the trumpet and the guitar in grade six, you mentioned? Yeah, there was um, a music teacher named Winifred Shoemaker. I suppose she anglicized her name at some point. But she somehow charmed uh, the head of the school board arts department to come up with a budget to buy new instruments for an entire band, uh, guitars as well, drums, a record player. She would bring in records and get the, all the latest top 40 hits. And we would listen to those and transcribe them and uh, or rather try and play them by ear after we learned a few chords. And she would play along a piano and she played guitar as well and would show us a few chords. And quite often after school, there was a group of us that, that formed there, four or five of us, and um, including my brother, who was a brilliant drummer, still plays the drums. And uh, we would just thrash out top 40 tunes, you know, as best we could and, and, and learn learn by ear. But yeah, if it wasn't for her... Her and a, a few other formative teachers, I would not have had any career. When would you say the next uh, uh, the next biggest impact was in your in your elementary high school career? Well, it was definitely in high school when I went to Britannia. There was a teacher named Victor Guy, and he and I are friends and communicate still. Uh, who had a very very active music program, and one of the things he did was 
to expand it into a community band where he had many returning graduates who were either doing music as a hobby or pursuing music education and needed an outlet to play. Because as you know, once you leave school, if you don't pursue it professionally or academically, once you leave a high school or even once you leave the university, there's a big void and uh, no place to go. And so he certainly provided it. And that exposed me to more difficult music, more performance opportunities, uh, uh, getting along with other older musicians who more or less kept me in line. So that was invaluable. When you graduated, did you ever give um, becoming the deckhand a go before? uh, Because you went to UBC for music, correct? Well, yes and no. Uh, Not from anything traumatic or awful, but I wanted to be independent of of being under my, my, my mother's roof. So I left home when I was 18. While I certainly wasn't a deckhand, I worked at an ice factory, probably the most miserable job I've ever had, bagging up party ice in the freezer and carving out blocks of 50 pound blocks of ice and loading them on trucks in the freezer. I worked for many seasons um, and many years in the fish uh, processing industry down on commissioner street and did everything from clean the plants after a day's work to overnight work and forklift driving and butchering salmon. And so I, I did what I could to keep a roof over my head and the whole time still still kept studying. I, I did go to Vancouver Community College after taking a year off to work after high school and uh, met up with a trumpet player there named Thomas Perriott, who was uh, another formative teacher, really taught me a lot. He took me the next step, uh, which was exposing me to orchestral music and um really getting me on the right track with the right teachers, including including a, a mentor of both of us, Vincent Chikowitz, who was for many years a trumpet player in the Chicago Symphony and also on faculty at Northwestern University. Um, and it's that so-called Chicago School of Playing, which is, I think, akin to, uh, in vocal terms, bel canto, you know, beautiful sound, beautiful singing. In the 50s, uh, there was a group of... Uh, brass players who came up with the Chicago Symphony. And it was uh, Arnold Jacobs and and my teacher, or our teacher, Vincent Chikowitz, and, and Adolph Bud Herseth, who was ha- held that chair for 54 years, if you can imagine, principal trumpet, and is still the standard we hold ourselves up to today. He was uh, an original. He was uh, of a, a, a standard of excellence that was previously unheard. And to this day, you know, we're still aspiring to uh, to be like him. Eventually, when you uh, graduated and everything, how did you find your way to the United States? Well, I have to set that straight for the record. I never graduated. Oh. I went to community college and took courses and took lessons. And then in 86, I went to Chicago to study with Vincent Chikowitz and hang around Northwestern University and see Arnold Jacobs and, and, and hear the orchestra every week. And I did that for three or four months. Um, and then I did come back and take a year at UBC because they, they needed a ringer in the trumpet section. So they gave me a scholarship to go there. I, it, it's, it's a complete joke because when my daughter Carly was, when we went to enroll her, she said, Hey, do you have my dad's transcripts? <laughs> and the advisor, I think her name was Rain at the time, said, uh, oh, yes, let's look. I'm like, no, don't look. 
you know, lessons A, applied ensembles A, theory F, history F, class piano C minus. <laughs> you know, so I never did graduate. I also did. Uh, I feel like I'm listing a some prisons I went to or something. I, I, <laughs> I did a year at St. Louis Conservatory, which was fantastic. And I went there because I knew I needed to go to post-secondary school to get the opportunities. They gave me a full scholarship. So I said, well, hell yeah, you know, I'll go. And I studied with uh, another great teacher, Susan Slaughter, who was uh, the first female principal trumpet in any uh, American orchestra. And she inspired me and I don't want to say terrorized me every week, but she certainly held me accountable and she wasn't going to accept anything less, which was uh, something new for me. And uh, I think something that served me in good stead and, 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 and rubbed off. How long were you in St. Louis? Just one year. Yeah. Then I came back to Vancouver to freelance and work and, and uh, you know, fell in with the local freelance scene. As I mentioned, you, have been a member of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra for 25 years, but what was the first professional symphony orchestra you played for and how did you come to that position? I, I was trying to think of that. And to my recollection, it was the uh, Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. My teacher was associate principal trumpet and they needed an extra trumpet. And uh, so he got me in on there. The, the first full-time job I won was uh, actually it was quite funny. It was uh, Symphony Nova Scotia. And uh, it was about three weeks before the Met audition. And, and I walked out of the audition. And as is the tradition, I had won. So I was in charge of buying a round of beer for everyone who was still, still there that day. And I'm walking back and it's sort of early springtime and it's, it's, the weather's horrible, you know? And, uh, I thought, man, if I want to make no money and live by the ocean, I should maybe stay in Vancouver. And I, I told the personnel manager when they awarded me the job that I had an audition at the Met in about three weeks. And, uh, that if I won the Met job, that I wouldn't be able to honor any contract they were to offer me. And he just sort of laughed at me. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, sure, yeah. You let me know when you win that match up. So the person in the finals with me, who's a good friend, Mark Damaratnan, uh, said, Jim, when you win that job, I want you to tell me first so I can tell this guy. <laughs> and that's, in fact, what we did. So, <laughs> Were you there to see his reaction, or did you just hear afterwards? Uh, Mark told me afterwards. He said it was priceless. Is is there an opera that sold it for you um, that uh, moved you more towards that direction than the than the symphonic route? No, it, I took a very pragmatic role in that I just took the auditions as they came, and I th I thought, you know, I'd never go to New York on vacation, and I may never ever get there again. And we finished our, our run of Pearl Fishers here in Vancouver, so I hopped on a red eye and. Uh, you know, flew into New York and had a day off and then did the, the first round of the audition the next day. And I, I thought, well, this is going well. And then I got advanced to the next round. Oh, this is going well. And then all of a sudden I'm in the finals with two other players. And I was thinking, no one's going to believe this. <laughs> like, <laughs> I better have them write me a note here because no one's going to believe this. So no particular one thing that drew me towards it. I, I think very few people start out to play in the pit. It's it's all of our wishes to be up on stage and 
be what people are there for. But I will say that I think as a standalone orchestra, the the Met holds its own on, on a good night with 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 any. And uh, there's a different kind of pressure of being on stage with uh, with the orchestra and being featured. I have had the opportunity to travel to New York a few times in my life so far, um, but none of the trips even come close to being as memorable as uh, the one I came when I came in 2017. When we met, you not only gave me a tour of the backstage of the Met, which I, I was like completely speechless for the entire time, but then I got to sit in the orchestra and listen to the Verdi Requiem and that moment and that memory um, I wouldn't give up for anything because as just as the lights dimmed, Peter Gelb, who as listeners will know is the director, um, general director of the Met, uh, walked on stage to let the audience know that the great baritone and a personal idol of mine, um, Dmitry Horostovsky, had just passed away. And I don't think it I, I've ever been a part of or listened to a more emotionally charged and passionate performance. Yeah, and that was just the rehearsal. And that was just the <laughs> rehearsal. <laughs> that was also the, you know, you saw Levine in his last few weeks in the Opera House. Uh, I, I did. So you witnessed history in, in more than one way. I did. I was going to bring that up because it was interesting. I, during the intermission, I kind of went up and I, and, I, um, and I shook his hand. <laughs> I'm not sure. And I was trying to find you as well, wave you down, but I'm not sure if you saw. And then I saw you a couple of minutes later in the corner. Yeah, you won't find me anywhere near the conductor. No, no, no. No, you won't. <laughs> That's what you told me backstage as well. Um, but then a couple of weeks later, the, the, the news came out and I was like, oh, God. I, yeah, exactly. And his, you know, it was a Saturday after a Saturday matinee of uh, The Requiem, which is a piece I love, actually. I, my, my secret musical fantasy is to play bass drum in that. I, I swear to God, I just whap the shit out of that bass drum. <laughs> you got to make it a reality. When when things go back to some sense of normalcy, like hey, you all, have to just all, make it happen. All my other dreams have come true. Why not this one? This has to come true because if it, it has to come true. And I want to be there for it. <laughs> From my lips to God's ears, when it happens, you will be there. Done. Thank you. Um I'm not going to ask you to pick favorites uh, here, but are there performances or productions uh, in the 25 years that you've been at the Met um, that you hold near to your heart? Yeah, um, I think uh, as maybe hackneyed and overplayed as they are, Bohème and Torndot, because of the kind of production we do that really only the Met can mount, which is grand opera, just the scale of it. And it's certainly not subtle. But man, it's satisfying, you know. So that, and for my own ego, uh, Tchaikovsky, Queen of Spades, because in the second act, there's a very long second trumpet solo that I've managed to get myself scheduled on for many, many times. So I did it with Gergiev, with Jarovsky, with Ozawa. Um, I forget who else, but uh, those are the three conductors I can remember for that. My first show, of course, uh, with Levine conducting uh, was in 95, and it was Otello. It was my opening night. Domingo was singing Otello. Rene Fleming was singing Desdemona, and James Morris was Iago. Uh, that was sort of like, hey, welcome to New York, you know. Any of the 
Strauss operas are just phenomenal. You know, we did Frau und Schatten with Tielemann, which was a, a revelation. The Parsifal we did with Daniela Gatti uh, a few years ago uh, was, it was magical. This This man did the whole evening without a score, memorized in the moment at the time, balancing, adjusting the whole time. And we would finish just, you know, sweat soaked and emotionally drained. And I thought, man, if, if they say we're going to turn around now at midnight and do this at nine in the morning, I'll be there in that chair and be happy to do it. He conducted the entirety of Parsifal by memory? Yeah. And and as I said, not just in a choreographed way, like here's where no, I no, no. it. In the moment. In the moment, balances, cues, uh, bringing inner parts out mostly. Just I'd never experienced that before. And, and, and also our... Almost music director, Fabio Luisi. Everything we did with him, I liked. You know, Butterfly is one of my least favorite Puccini operas, maybe because I played it so many times. And so we were in our third casting of it in one season. Uh, as you know, they start start and do a block of shows and they go away for a while. You come back and from night to night, it could be different conductor, different cast, different orchestra members. Um and we were on our third go around that season of Butterfly, and he scheduled some readings. And I'm like, so orchestra reading for Butterfly? What? I used to like this guy, you know. Now he's gone <laughs> too far. And it was a revelation because, especially with Puccini, you know, where you're, you're hearing different things in the orchestration all the time. So those two I have to mention as part of the productions that are memorable as well. And 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 my my one sort of guilty pleasure is uh, operas where we don't play a lot, but the Donizetti and Rossini ones with the great bel canto casts. Um, uh, and again, it's it's formulaic. It's you know you know what's coming next. Um, you know there's there's another uh, time around on this verse, and then you're going to get the ornaments like a decapo aria almost. But with a good cast and a great orchestra like we have, it's 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 a pleasure to listen to. I mean, it's a drag to play, but uh, you know, I'm really really lucky in 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 the quality of musicians that that I get to work with and to hear them do their thing is uh, it's it's a marvel. Uh, it's uh, it's a it's a privilege for sure. How many operas in total do you uh, have under your proverbial belt? Oh, I have no way of knowing. <laughs> I mean, when I started, we did 21 different productions a season. Uh, now we're up to 25. Um, and hopefully hopefully we will be back up there again. Of those, there's some seasons I play every, some part in every of them. You know, some are rotating. You rotate in and out of. Some are fixed that you're, you're on for the, the whole run. Um, and I've also played every chair in the orchestra from principal to off stage. As far as numbers of performances, I think, you know, you figure 33 weeks a year, five shows a week on average, uh, 165 a season times 25. I had two years off for good behavior when I went one, when I did one <laughs> season at the Philharmonic and another when I did a season in Seattle. So 23 times 165. It's a lot. So I wanted to talk to you about the pandemic a little bit. 
I've discussed the pandemic with every guest so far and with the hopes of making the struggles and the difficulties of the situation uh, we are in relatable to audience members who are not uh, full-time musicians. So what has the quarantine meant for you on an inner level? Well, you certainly question your relevance and it's maybe an antiquated notion, but as someone who provides for their family, it's, it's, you know, the ego takes a blow on a larger scale. Um, I think of what's happening with some of my colleagues, some of them are, who are not in position to have worked for many years and, uh, acquired access to, you know, assets that they can leverage through this, uh, through, because, uh, we've not been paid by the Met since, uh, April 1st. So we're relying on unemployment insurance. I was getting closer to retirement. So we, we sort of had our plans to downsize and move along in two to five years. <clears throat> so our time frame could just possibly moved ahead, but I have many colleagues who are you know, just starting that journey. And uh, I'm concerned about where this is going to leave them. I sort of had my ride on the dinosaur, right? If I had to leave tomorrow, um, I certainly wish my colleagues and anyone else embarking on this as a career path and a, a passion that, that, that they could have the same benefit uh, of a long career that I did. Um, I, I, I think that will happen. I think after the initial adjustments, which are going to take quite some time, there'll be a sort of reawakening. And after the last pandemic or after the last so-called Spanish flu, you know, came the roaring twenties. There's a great pent up demand for all sorts of diversion, if you will. And also during this time, it seems that the people that fund these things have gotten richer and richer. So it's a real dichotomy where they, you know, oh, can't give now. It's like your portfolio just blew up. I think some of these donors, at least at the Met and ones that I'm dealing with as a member of the orchestra committee, um, see this kind of patronage that they've been giving through their for-profit business lens, right? It's never been a for-profit endeavor. It's always been uh, literally a, a system of patronage. You know, we, we do what we do at, at, at their pleasure, quite frankly. Um, that's not to say you can't fight for just gains and just working conditions. But, you know, certainly imposing a for-profit model of management on a nonprofit is not the way to go, uh, as is the current trend amongst uh, certain companies. I think people can read between those lines. I've left enough room. I personally hope that maybe, just maybe, we can move towards a system where cultural organizations uh, have consistent and competitive uh, seed funding from the government. Um, Maybe that's a little of a a reach, uh, thinking that the German style of doing things is, is... could happen in Canada or the U.S., but I think it's it's critical. I mean, the when, when normal people or lay people don't understand this, but when when hard times come, they always go to arts and culture to comfort them. Um, and yet, society has a habit of <laughs> making uh, arts and cultural institutions the first thing that it turns its back on. Absolutely, and I think it also is 
Very important that artists don't lose sight of their value. My, my, as you know, both my kids are up and coming musicians and my son works in the popular music field. He, he, he's a producer, wants to be a producer in hip hop. And I see the time he puts in to his craft. And uh, it's something I used to sort of dismiss as a quote art form or as a valid form of music until I saw him doing it and learned that, hey, he's learning about musical influences the same way I did. He's telling me about a Bill Evans jazz piano solo, not because he listened to Bill Evans record, but because someone else, you know, sampled it and manipulated it. And he said, that's cool. What is that? So this sort of way of uh, journeyman learning, you know, still happens. But one thing when he was started to sell some of his music, I said, don't ever undervalue what you do. Don't give it away. Artists tend to undervalue the work that they do. You know, when we do work, we're glad for it. But but uh, I see how much work that all of us put into what we do. You know, hours and hours. It's 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 like an iceberg. You know, you, you, you the tip is the performance. Uh, what's that's what's under the water that takes all the time, and I think we have to account for that and not not undervalue ourselves either. You know, I had a, I had a plumber come in here right when I was quarantining. I stayed at a friend's place, a very old house, and the plumbing backed up. And I said, well, I'm, I'm here, so I'm responsible for it. Plumber cost 900 bucks. He was there for two hours. Oh, I don't think he went home and practiced plumbing for 10 hours <laughs> first. You know what I mean? No. Let's not sell ourselves short. I mean, what, what, what artists do, uh, maybe this is speaking out of turn, but especially in relation to singers, you know, what what they do and the talents they have are just indescribable. We're going through this now with our orchestra negotiations. And uh, it's like, you know, we're dealing with lots of lawyers. It's like, you don't understand what we do. I could become a lawyer. I could go to school and do that. You can't do what I do after five years of training. We, you know, we've, we've been doing this our whole lives. And it's a cumulative art that takes many, many hours and many years to come to fruition. And, uh, so you have to keep that in mind when you're out there doing it, I think. Along those same lines, what are your hopes for the community of musicians and artists uh, in a world um, post-COVID-19? What do you see as challenges? Well, challenge is funding, number one. Having the audience have a comfort level to gather, which, uh, you know, I just spent 25 years in the United States uh, which, so if you, if you look at what's happening down there, you know, they seem to be, uh, in a great hurry to gather again, although I'll be at completely at the wrong time. But, uh, my hope is that they just survive. We just survive, you know, uh, I'm practicing every day in hopes that I'll get back to do it again. I've been lucky enough and done a little bit of work with the Montreal Symphony since the pandemic started, which was a, a real, a real boost you know it's it's it, it goes beyond the music we found ourselves after the concert just the four of us stay on on trumpets sitting on stage talking because we hadn't seen each other in months and uh just this human interaction is uh is what we needed jim thank you so so much for joining me uh it's been awesome i'm i'm planning on doing a um a roundtable series as well. And I would love uh, to be able to invite you back on for that as well. It would be my pleasure. And before we go, can I just mention two quick 
uh, plugs here. Um, please, please, please. If you want to see what we as uh, individuals and as an orchestra of the Metropolitan Opera uh, are doing to raise funds for ourselves and um, give grants to our musicians and our music staff, our full and part-time musicians, and our wonderful music staff who help the singers every day uh, preparing for their roles, uh, we have a 501c3 charity uh, that are giving out grants to people who apply. So far, um, this group has raised over $370,000. Amazing. Um, and that's uh, so you can go to uh, Met Orchestra Musicians, uh, hashtag We Will Met Again, um, various ways to help us or just take an interest in what we're doing. Um, if, if people could, could check those two out, I would, those two uh, things out, I'd be forever indebted to you. Jim, thank you so, so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I'm so happy we got to do this. Yes, and soon, hopefully, one hopes in person. Yes, uh, we still have uh, uh, a couple beers that we need to catch up on. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Uh, Please say hi to Margaret for me, and I will talk to you soon, hopefully. I shall. Be well. Take care. As Jim mentioned, if you want to see what the members of the Met Opera Orchestra are doing to raise funds for their organization, specifically with grants for musicians and their staff, go to metorchestramusicians.org. And if you can, please donate. Thank you, as always, to Duncan Watts Grant for editing and producing the show with me. If you are one of our new listeners, remember to subscribe, like, and leave us a comment on Apple Podcast. And as always, please make sure to support your local arts and cultural institutions in any way you can. Thank you for listening.